Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Kathy Hochul approved a congressional map this week that gives her fellow Democrats a modest boost in a few battleground districts. Lawmakers in the Democratic-dominated State House approved the mapping bill Wednesday. Hochul signed it hours later. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. With little debate, the lines drawn by Democrats who lead both the Senate and Assembly were approved, with a handful of Republican minority party lawmakers also voting yes. Announce the results. Ayes 115, noes 33. The bill is passed. The vote comes two days after Democrats rejected district lines recommended by a bipartisan redistricting commission. Republicans accuse Democrats of ignoring the state's constitution. It requires the commission, known as the Independent Redistricting Commission, or IRC, to draw the maps. But Democratic Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty says the constitution also allows lawmakers to alter the maps if they believe they need to. I think that sometimes even the media forgets that the legislature still has a role. We don't have to just pass whatever the IRC passed doesn't mean that whatever the IRC passed means it's, uh, it's perfect and would not have been open to a lawsuit on its own. And so I would hope that people forget that the Constitution does leave it with the legislature to make the final say on lines. The revised lines are marginally more favorable to some Democratic incumbents and could present a slightly tougher challenge to some Republican Congress members who are seeking re-election. Governor Kathy Hochul, who issued a message of necessity to accelerate the voting, says she intends to expedite her review of the maps before deciding whether to sign the legislation. But she says she won't be drawn into the political arguments surrounding the lines. But as with every bill, I look at it when it's completed, I make my determination, and I'm not going to pass judgment on the process thus far. I've heard from a lot of people that it is an improvement from the point of view of one party and others... Uh, I'm not here to weigh in on the on the political dynamic involved here. I've said I will not. Legal challenges to the new congressional district lines were anticipated, but so far no Republicans have said they intend to file a lawsuit. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. This week I sat down with Susan Lerner, Executive Director of Common Cause New York. I began by asking Susan about what her take is on the new congressional map approved by Governor Hochul. Well, what a sad, shaggy dog story you've just told us that we all had to live through with all of this back and forth. You know, it seems like there are two political parties with big foam bats hitting each other over the head, over the maps, which is not what our system is supposed to be. You know, what you've described is a system that completely ignores the voters and puts political preferences first. That's not what our system is supposed to be. Now, at the end of the day, the maps have been tweaked a little bit by the politically driven redistricting commission, tweaked a little bit further by the legislature. Everybody along the way wants to show they have a pencil, they can make changes. But luckily, at the end of the day, the changes to what was basically a perfectly okay map 
drawn by the court-appointed master in 2022 has remained relatively unchanged. What's most important is that we are putting a cap on this endless, sad, shaggy dog story. The maps are final, and voters and candidates can now turn to what's really important, which is the election. What do you make, though, of Speaker Hasty? and I'm going to paraphrase what he said, though, which was basically to a reporter that the legislature doesn't have to abide by the IRC, the Independent Redistricting Commission. And once again, you you make it political by saying that, don't you? Absolutely. But that's the weakness with the system that's set up in our state constitution. Because let me be very upfront. Common Cause opposed that amendment because we felt it was way too political. We went to court to successfully get a court order that prevented the use of the word independent on the ballot in 2014 to describe the redistricting commission because it's not independent. It's politically driven. People are appointed by legislative leaders. They're appointed on the basis of their party affiliation. It doesn't have to look like the state. It doesn't have to reflect the diverse geography and regions of the state. The commission reflects the desires of the political parties. But what happened is in this most recent iteration, the legislature wanted to show that they had the final word. They didn't need to make big changes. They just needed to show that they had a large pencil backed up by a big stick. And again, it's the voters who are the losers in that situation. But this is not the only way to do it. There are better models out there, and it's about time we started talking about what redistricting really should be in our state instead of what we've been burdened with over the last several years. We are on the same page because that's where I was going. Tell us about the Syracuse example. Well, the Syracuse example is a really good example. Thank you for bringing that up. Syracuse, and this is really to the credit of the Syracuse Common Council, because um, they, uh, several years ago in 2018 and 19, decided that they were not the right people to draw the maps because of their own self-interest, as they needed to put the voters first. And they went ahead and introduced a system where 15 non-politically chosen residents of Syracuse get together, they're on a commission, they hear from uh, members of the public in Syracuse, they conduct hearings, they negotiate the map in public, and they come up with a fair map that reflects the actual communities of Syracuse, that's a compromise map. That's a consensus map. No one community, no one political party gets to draw the map to their advantage. It's a negotiation between the different parts of the city. So you have a consensus map that fairly represents where people actually, as I said, live, work, and gather. So Maps that are fair have to be based around the communities that make up any one jurisdiction. And in Syracuse, they now have a map that reflects the actual patterns of living, working, and gathering in Syracuse. That's Susan Lerner, Executive Director of Common Cause New York. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. 
as opioid addiction has been a scourge on the nation. A new program aims to help curb opioid and substance abuse disorders in Saratoga County schools. We get more from the Legislative Gazette's Aaron Shell-Levine. The Saratoga County Board of Supervisors unanimously approved the use of $200,000 in opioid regional abatement funding to create a partnership between the Saratoga County Sheriff's Office and the Saratoga County Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Republican County Board of Supervisors Chair Phil Barrett says this latest initiative is a continuation of years of effort to curb drug addiction and related deaths in the county. Having previously led the Health and Human Services Committee, Barrett says the need for a new approach starting in the county's schools is evident. Our schools are on the front lines dealing with young young children who are uh, in a sometimes in a very difficult state of mind and are just taken over by the use of drugs. And it Starts somewhere, whether it starts with smoking or vapes or uh, marijuana, and and unfortunately, in in most occasions, it leads to something much more concerning. Victoria Ferfaro is on the Saratoga County Citizens Committee for Mental Health and says community members have been hesitant to support such programming, but the benefits are immense. They may think that the the children are too innocent or whatever it may be to learn about these things and have it present in the schools. But I think it's extremely helpful. And currently this, this year, the topic for the Saratoga County Citizens Committee for Mental Health is that we are touching on substance use in order to change the stigma surrounding that. So I think that's something that that's very important to do as well is changing the stigma because once you change the stigma, then you have access to so many more resources. The program will connect certified recovery peer advocates with already in place school resource officers to assist students suffering from substance abuse disorders and provide education to students and teachers throughout the county. Sheriff's Department Captain Dan Morley says the department is grateful to be working with mental health professionals in a way that adds on to existing services. That's something that's it's going to build on the trust that we've already developed with the students and with the schools, we hope. And it's going to be a situation where uh, hopefully with that trust that's been built up, people are going to have the desire to approach these individuals, these professionals, and fulfill their needs for whatever uh, needs they have in the recovery community. Again, Barrett. The certified recovery peer advocates, they're, they're people that work directly with individuals suffering from addiction. They, in many cases, have been addicted themselves. They've recovered. They're professionally trained. So they come in with a tremendous amount of credibility. But, you know, as as a government and working in tandem with our policing agencies, we need to continually get better and, and change how we're attacking this issue. Ferfaro says the investments in mental health services, like providing certified recovery peer advocates, is vital to educating kids and parents on the dangers of and solutions to substance abuse before addictions develop. A substance use disorder is a symptom of a mental illness. So I don't, I don't think a substance use disorder exists if there is not a mental illness. Um, it's essentially just a, a coping mechanism for an individual that's struggling. So um, 
that doesn't discriminate. You know, anyone can can stumble upon a substance, and before you know it, you have a full blown disease. Um, so bringing that awareness and education, I think, is really going to be the only only way that we can prevent kind of the uptick of fatal opioid-related overdoses. Ferfaro adds the program's success may be difficult to quantify, but it should be supported nonetheless. There's not really data that's going to come from the amount of people that were saved, so to speak, from this program being in schools. Um, so, like, I don't know that there will be a clear-cut way to determine success. However, I think the success is kind of spoken for itself, that even if you can deter one individual from becoming an adult with a substance use disorder that just can't progress in life, I think it's, it's valuable. According to a 2023 report, Saratoga County saw fatal drug overdoses increase by more than 30 percent from the previous year, with 727 non-fatal and fatal drug overdoses overall. Reporting for the Southern Adirondack Bureau on the campus of Skidmore College, this is Aaron Shallow-Levine. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Albany Common Counselor and Public Defender Gabriela Romero is among a number of candidates running for the State Assembly's 109th District. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. Romero, an attorney in the Albany County Public Defender's Office, officially kicked off her run for Assembly Tuesday night before an enthusiastic crowd of supporters at the Lark Tavern. Romero joins a crowded race field of candidates vying for the 109th seat being vacated by Pat Fahey, who is now running to replace 14-term Senator Neil Breslin, a fellow Democrat, in the 46th District. Born and raised in Albany, Romero traces her interest in public service back to her parents. My parents, committed public servants, taught me that I have a commitment to my community and to my family. My parents taught me that I have to always stand up really courageously and intensely with my chest puffed out no matter what. But my parents also taught me that there's no better and higher calling than to be a public servant. No surprise to anyone that I became a public defender. And for those of you that don't know what that means, I am an attorney that represents people in criminal court that can't afford to hire their own lawyer. The Albany Law School graduate was elected to the council in 2021, representing the 6th Ward, which includes the Center Square neighborhood. No stranger to a crowded ballot, Romero feels confident heading toward the June 25th Democratic primary, having fended off primary challenges from four others in the race for her council seat with nearly 47% of the vote. And I joined the Common Council um, and we did a lot of really great work, especially here on Lark Street. We created a first of its kind program to address mental health and the unhoused population. And we did so in an empathetic way. We did so by going to people and saying, what do you need? We have someone here that's gonna help you with physical health, mental health, housing, 
And in that moment, in that small summer where we created this pilot program, we started a transformation within this district. We started looking at people that were unhoused and saying, how can we directly connect you to services? And I'm really proud that that treatment program that was piloted in this district is something that we got $1.8 million for to be started this spring across Albany County. Romero adds she's had a hand in creating and passing bills that have increased transparency, dealt with absentee landlords, and legalized skateboarding citywide. As well as running as a Democrat, Romero is the chosen candidate of the Working Families Party. Jasmine Gripper is co-director of the Working Families Party in New York State. The party is here to continue to support Gabriella as she steps into a new role. We are going to all work together to do our part to make sure she goes to higher office. Romero says while she's proud of her accomplishments as a council member, she feels a calling for something more. Let me tell you what I want to do, because there's a lot. There's a lot of work and I'm excited to do it. It's so unaffordable to even live right now. Rent's increasing, gas increasing, price of food is increasing. It's difficult to even purchase a home. As a young person, I'm scared. I'm not sure how I'll be able to save enough money to put down a down payment. You need a fighter to make sure that we increase the minimum wage to $25 an hour. We need a, we need a fighter that's gonna make sure that the healthcare is free and accessible. You need a fighter to make sure that everyone has access to childcare so they can work, thrive, and live. Other candidates in the field so far include fellow councillors Sergio Adams of the 7th Ward, Jack Flynn of the 8th, Awusu Inane of the 10th, and Ginny Farrell of the 13th. Three Albany County legislators are also running, Sam Fine of the 6th District, Andrew Joyce of the 9th, and Dustin Reedy of the 30th. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Twenty years ago, 27 LGBTQ plus couples donned their best coats and met at a park in New Paltz, New York, to do two things, get married and break the law. The act of civil disobedience tested New York's marriage laws at a time when same-sex marriage was hotly debated, but still largely illegal in the U.S., on Sunday, the anniversary, friends and advocates reunited to remember those that made it all possible, and for one couple to get married again. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King was there and filed this report. In February 2004, Jay Blotcher and Brooke Garrett were determined to be married, and they were willing to shop around for laws in different states to do it. Massachusetts became the first state to recognize gay marriage that year, but not until May. And there was a significant effort by some states, endorsed by then-President George W. Bush, to pass a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage nationwide. For many, there was a fear that the door could close before it had even opened. So when Blotcher, a seasoned gay rights and AIDS activist, caught wind through his local food co-op that the mayor of New Paltz was planning to marry LGBTQ plus couples at Peace Park, he jumped at the opportunity. I looked at Brooke, I said, I guess we're getting married tomorrow. 
The mass wedding on February 27th ended up drawing international attention and hundreds of onlookers, including some protesters, but mostly supporters. What was intended to be a four-couple event, including Blotcher and Garrett, grew to more than two dozen ceremonies as couples continued to emerge from the crowd to be married by Mayor Jason West, more than seven years before state lawmakers narrowly voted to legalize same-sex marriage. It was uh, just exhilarating to be part of it, to have the support of all these strangers and to know that the world's eyes were upon us. Brooke, would you please repeat after me? I, Brooke, I, Brooke, take you, Jay, take you, Jay, to be my lawfully wedded husband. To be my lawfully wedded husband. On Sunday, Blotcher and Garrett renewed their vows with the same ceremony and efficient, but this time without the threat of legal repercussions. By the power not currently vested in me, but. The so-called Love is Love Drag Brunch, organized by the New Paltz Pride Coalition, served as part ceremony, part fundraiser for a new LGBTQ plus center in town. And West, who is now the director of sustainability for the city of Albany, was the guest of honor. 20 years ago, though, he was just a 26-year-old first-term mayor intent on making a mark. West tells WAMC the idea for the wedding was already in his brain while running for mayor. At the time, he was being lobbied by farmer and activist William Van Rostenberg, who was himself hoping to marry his partner of several years. West says he was also incensed by Bush's vocal opposition to gay marriage, and he felt like the ongoing debate over whether LGBTQ plus couples should be granted civil unions didn't go far enough. I always thought that was just not good enough. You know, separate but equal has never been a good policy and for civil rights or for this. By hosting the wedding, West didn't actually expect the couple's marriages to be treated as official. They would still need to be approved by the Department of Health to get a license, and that was unlikely. However, the law neither allowed nor forbid West to solemnize same-sex marriages. And due to a loophole in New York's domestic relations law, a couple without a license was still legally married so long as their union was solemnized. Except the person doing the solemnization is guilty of a misdemeanor punishable by a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. So we thought we could just, in the absence of marriage licenses, just solemnize weddings. And according to domestic relations law, they would be married. And I would be going to court to defend myself against multiple misdemeanors. Were you nervous at all on the day of, of how things could go down? Oh, I didn't sleep the night before. It was, I was terrified. So terrified, in fact, that Van Rostenberg says the wedding was nearly called off. A few days before it happened, Jason was afraid to do it for many reasons. He didn't want the taxpayers of New Paltz to pay millions of dollars of legal fees. I um, had the last meeting in his office. I shut the door. He didn't want to do it. I, in, in the hallway next to his office, I just called some press I know and leaked it to the press, and the rest is history. <laughs> so you kind of forced the hand a little bit. Had to. Van Rostenberg and his then-partner, Army Major Jeffrey McGowan, were the first to be married on February 27th. And the day went off without a hitch, at least at first. After the event, West was slapped with 19 misdemeanor charges for solemnizing a marriage without a license. But by this point, West says he was undeterred. The wedding had stirred up so much press that the town now had a wait list of hundreds of couples looking to get married. West felt safe for the pro bono legal team, and he promised to continue marrying couples on a regular basis until the court stepped in with a restraining order, which promptly happened. But when West was knocked down, the local clergy stepped up. West says roughly 300 people got married in the three months after the initial New Paltz event. 
Ultimately, after a year and a half in court, the charges against West were dropped. It was several years before marriage equality became the law of the land, but New York would beat the Supreme Court to legalization by about four years. West hopes the New Paltz weddings played a role in that. The weddings we did in New Paltz normalized gay couples for a lot of people who maybe don't know gay people personally. It's such a normal thing to get married. And, it, you know, it's, it's such a normal, touching act that it's hard to watch people get married and hold hatred in your heart for it. I think we opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that civil rights should apply to the gay and lesbian community. And, and that there are rights, there are you know, over a thousand rights with marriage uh, that these folks are being denied. And, and that that's just simply unfair. Welcome to the Love is Love Drag Brunch, everyone. My name is Dila Peculiar. I'm the hairiest woman in show business in the Hudson Valley. I'm just an Italian with a dream. Uh, welcome gathering for this event. Um, it, it's been the nicest thing I've celebrated in a long time, especially with what's been going on in our media and targeted against our queer community. For attendees at Sunday's Drag Brunch, the anniversary also served as a reminder of how fragile those rights can be. Several states have passed restrictions on the transgender community in recent years, and Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman just signed an executive order banning transgender athletes from competing in women's sports. In his concurring opinion for Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested the court should revisit other landmark cases including the case granting marriage equality. Just last week, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed a law allowing public officials to refuse to perform marriages for LGBTQ couples. West says he's not sure the New Paltz weddings could have happened so peacefully today. The country is even more divided now than it was in 2004. However, he and Blotcher both say the event stands as an important example of the power of organization and helped foster a vibrant LGBTQ community in the Hudson Valley. I think the lessons that we can learn from the New Paltz weddings is that when you see injustice, respond to it, push back against the bullies because there are good-hearted people out there who want to do the right thing and you need to connect with them and undo all the awful things that conservatives in this country are hell-bent on doing. Blotcher and Garrett were eventually married for real in California in 2008, and Blotcher helped found the Hudson Valley LGBTQ Center in Kingston. Van Rostenberg and McGowan later divorced, but Van Rostenberg regularly hosts weddings at his farm, Liberty View Farm, in Highland. The New Paltz Pride Coalition estimates Sunday's fundraiser collected more than $12,000 in donations that will go toward establishing a new Pride Center in town. Reporting from New Paltz for WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau on the campus of Vassar College, I'm Jesse King. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public News Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at WAMCpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2409. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.